series of uh, messages uh, for Christmas entitled, Don't Miss Christmas. Don't Miss Christmas. If you kind of watch the news, you get the idea that it's quite possible for people to go through Christmas and totally miss Christmas, right? You know, I was trying to figure out what some of the news had to do with Christmas uh, on uh, Black Friday and so on and so forth, you know, what the association really was. But anyway, um, as we approach the Christmas season, uh, I want to suggest that, you know, God's ways and God's revelations, uh, God's uh, way of thinking and so forth, uh, sometimes are pretty hard for people to accept. Uh, pretty hard with the natural mind to wrap around the reality of what God does. Uh, in fact, most of what God does is counterintuitive to the human mind. It's sort of the opposite of the way we normally think. In fact, I would suggest to you that every really important um, biblical truth is the direct opposite of what the natural mind is able to grab a hold of. For example, uh, the incarnation. The idea that God, Almighty God, in all of His strength, all of His power, all of His glory, that God would empty Himself, humble Himself, reduce Himself, and become a person, and become a baby in the person of Jesus, is a hard concept for most people to embrace. That God would become a human being. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? Emmanuel, God with us. Do you believe that? Pretty hard concept to think. Um, you know, uh, when Jesus was here, uh, the Greek philosophers and professors thought that God would be totally other than matter. In fact, uh, most of the philosophy at that time thought that matter was evil, that all the evil was wrapped up in matter. And so the idea of God, good God, perfect God, becoming matter was laughable to them. And the idea that God would be a human being, you know, was totally rejected. And still today, I would tell you that the major point of contention between Christianity and every other religion is whether or not Jesus is, in fact, God. There are lots of religions that embrace the person of Jesus, but not as God. He's a good teacher. He's a good example. He's a good moral person. You know, has a lot of good ideas, yada, yada. But he's not God. The idea that God would become a human being is a tough concept for people to wrap their minds around. And the implications of Jesus being God among us are so obvious and so invasive into our personal lives. I mean, if Jesus was really God, who wouldn't listen to him? If you are convinced that Jesus was really God, who wouldn't be reading their Bible to find out what Jesus has to say for themselves? I mean, the implications are, do you really believe that Jesus is God? Because it would radically change your life if you really believe. Who wouldn't be loyal to Jesus if you believed that he was God? And he's so easy to understand. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. You can know God. You can know all about him. 
because Jesus came, and he came to get close to us so that we wouldn't be afraid. We can approach a person. Can you imagine approaching a person named Jesus and meeting God? The implications are far-reaching. And so uh, because Jesus is so easy to understand, easy to observe, so close to us and so forth, so what people do instead is to create a religion. Because if we kind of create a religion to take the place of the person who is God, who's close enough to know personally, we can sort of feel like we're still giving allegiance to God, but without having to surrender control to God being among us and right with us. Pretty easy to miss Christmas if you don't understand that Jesus is, in fact, God, Emmanuel, God among us. Or how about the resurrection? Here's another truth that I think is kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around. Another truth that's sort of counterintuitive. To go to a funeral and to look at that person and to say, they're not really dead. Just their body has died. Their soul has gone to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I did a funeral yesterday for a fellow whose pastor had resigned, and I didn't know the guy, but uh, family asked if I would do the funeral. I did the funeral. At the end of the funeral, uh, a guy came up to me. I don't know who he is. He just said, uh, is all that true? He says, this is the first time I've ever heard that there's life on the other side of the grave. I was shocked. And uh, so we got into this little conversation. It was a wonderful conversation right there at the cemetery, just talking about, you know, yeah, this is really true. You know, do you believe in Christmas? Do you understand Christmas? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you think that he came back from the dead on Easter Sunday? That death is not really what it looks like, that we will all be raised, that there is an afterlife, that there is a heaven and a hell. That God made us in his own likeness, in his own image. And like God is eternal, so are we. But it's a hard concept for people to wrap their minds around. This revelation from God of the resurrection has huge implications about how we live today. Here's what the Bible says. You can lay up treasure for yourself in heaven by how you live today. Can you imagine getting to heaven and being broke? That would really stink, don't you think? I don't want to be the pastor and you get to heaven and say, well, you know, my pastor never told me I could lay up treasures in heaven by how I live and the choices I make today. Well, you can, I'm telling you. Lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. You know, money's not going to be worth much here anyway, so, you know. <laughs> but do I believe in the resurrection and the implications and does it show up in the way I live? Here's another one. For most people, uh, it seems to me that the idea that by nature... We are sinful is offensive. If I stood up here today and told you these two precious little babies, even as they're just young and precious and everybody oohs and ahs and loves and they're innocent and so on, they have a nature that will be contrary to God's wishes for their life. They're born with it. We inherit it from our parents. We inherit it from Adam and Eve all the way back. And we come into this world with this kind of bent away from God. And uh, uh, I think most people have a hard time, you know, getting around that. And not only that, but the idea that the only way to ever make it right between us and God has got to be all by God's doing, all by grace. 
In other words, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't fix it. We're helpless. That's the truth. That's what God, that's a hard concept for people to wrap their heads around. I guarantee you, if you ask nine out of ten people, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? And you ask them, nine people out of ten, and then you ask them, well, why do you think you're going to heaven? Nine out of ten people will tell you, it's because I'm a good person. And yet the Bible comes forward and said, you are never going to be able to be good enough to go to heaven. It's all of grace. It's God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. That seems ridiculous to most people. Uh, but God, you know, blesses the undeserving, chooses the insignificant to show that it's all of him. And then he simply asks that we trust him, that we believe him. You know, it started with Abraham. Abraham's the first person God called. And Abraham, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, he's the father of the faithful. Uh, both the Jews and the Christians claim Abraham as their father. And uh you know, when God called Abraham, it's not because God saw something in Abraham and said, oh, I see a little spark of faith. Maybe I could fan it to flame in Abraham. No. The Bible actually says Abraham was worshiping other gods. He was worshiping other gods. He was a total pagan. And God called him to himself. God chose him, and God gave faith to him, and he responded to God. God took Abraham from his sinful, uh, estranged place and called him, and Abraham listened to God. And same with the next generation. Isaac was his son, right? God says, I'm going to give you a son. It's pretty obvious, you know. Uh, Abraham's 100 by the time he has a son. It's all of God. It's all of God. Isaac is all of God. It's pretty easy to see and understand. Same with the next generation, Jacob. The Bible says that God chose Jacob before he's even born. It's all of God. And that's the message of the Scripture. Here's another thing that I think is really hard for people to believe. Another hard-to-believe, difficult truth to hear is uh, God's take on religion. God's take on religion. You know, in most people's minds, people think that religion is a good thing. Most people think that some religion is better than no religion at all. And then we speculate that that must be how God thinks as well. And uh, that's wrong. It's not how God thinks. Uh, it's not at all how God thinks. Uh, not only is God not pleased with religion and its usual practices, but in fact, he's displeased. In fact, the Bible says he hates religion. You know, to the Jewish people, God in the Old Testament, time and time again, would come out and say, I hate your religious festivals, your Christmases. I hate your assemblies. I will not accept your offerings. And if you think of the New Testament, just think of Jesus and the religion of the Pharisees. They were the most moral people going. They had the most moral religion going. And Jesus constantly, they were his biggest enemy. Because God hates religion. And uh, people don't, you know, uh, religion becomes like a substitute for God. Instead of listening to the God who's come close to us in the person of Christ, instead of listening for God to speak to us through Christ, we create a religion. And the religion enables us to kind of have a degree of respectability, kind of a, 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 a facade of worshiping God without having to listen to him and surrender control of your life to the God who's come among us in the person of Christ. Can you see how religion would cause you to miss Christmas and miss this miracle of God becoming one of us so that we might have a personal relationship with him? I think God hates religion. Religion is usually focused on how good we are, whereas Jesus is focused on how good God is. 
and there's a world of difference. Let me just read from one of the Old Testament places uh, in uh, Micah. I'm in one of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, in Micah chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. Listen to what the Lord says. Here's what God says. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains, God says to Israel. Let's have court. Let's let the mountains be the jewelry. Um, stand up and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. And then God speaks. He says, hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead and also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And when Balaam, son of Baor, answered, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. In other words, across the Jordan River, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember your history, he said to them. With what shall I come before the Lord? How do I respond? And how do I bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn children for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's like, keep your religion and develop your relationship with me. Allow me to be your father. Allow me to be your shepherd. Allow me to be your leader. Allow me to be your influencer. And allow me to make you like me. I created you to be in my image. I am a God, right, uh, who acts justly, loves mercy, and walks humbly, so humbly, that I became a human being all the way down into a baby in order that I might become the savior of the world. Forget the religion. Embrace the relationship and make it a reality. We saw recently that um, uh, God in one of the other uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, God said this. He said, surely the sovereign God, surely the sovereign God uh, does not do anything without revealing his plan. Surely the sovereign God would not pull off Christmas, something like Christmas, without revealing his plan ahead of time so that nobody would miss it. Surely the sovereign God does nothing without revealing his plans ahead of time. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah this morning. There are at least uh, 37 direct prophecies about Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament. And I want to suggest to you that even today, in the midst of what's become sort of an independent religious Christmas, we can listen for the voice of God and not miss what God intends for us with the coming of Christ. Um, certain, certainly, you know, a major purpose of God in revealing his plan before he acts is to establish our faith in his word, to develop our trust in him, to convince us of his trustworthiness and uh, to garner our loyalty to him. But here's the question, who listens? Who listens? Who listens to God speaking 750 years before Christmas even happens to reveal what he's up to so that nobody misses it? 
Our former president, Bill Clinton, one time said that being president is like running a cemetery. You have a lot of people under you, but nobody's listening. Yeah? You remember when he said that? And sometimes I wonder if God doesn't feel like that. I have a lot to say. I don't do a thing without first revealing my plans. But the question is, who's listening? Who really wants to hear? So that we can garner our faith in him. The first commandment, you know, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? I would suggest to you that the first duty of love is to listen. If you say, I love somebody, but you don't listen to them, you're just fooling yourself. If you don't respect them enough as a person to listen to them, you're just kidding yourself. The first duty of love is to listen. And if we're going to be people who say we love God, the first duty of that love, the first responsibility of that love is to listen. And so I want to focus on the prophet Isaiah in these next few weeks to listen to God, who does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants so that we don't miss Christmas as God intended it. And uh, God starts speaking to Isaiah. This is 750 years before Christ comes, before Jesus was even born. And he reveals some remarkable things. Anybody who will listen to God speak through Isaiah would not miss Christmas and uh, would be also filled with hope because in connection with the revelation that Isaiah makes of Jesus Christ comes this promise of a golden age, a day that is coming on this earth when this Jesus who came the first time returns and creates this golden kind of an age. And it's really a fascinating prophecy. Now, Isaiah, he was a court preacher. Uh, he was a contemplative uh, kind of person. He was a city minister. And uh, he was uh, uh, sort of the Apostle Paul. I think of him as the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah's father was related to the king. King Uzziah was the king in Isaiah's day. At the, you know, at the beginning, remember, uh, his prophecy starts when Uzziah died. And so as Isaiah is growing up, uh, Uzziah is the king, and his father's related to Uzziah. So Isaiah is at home in government circles, at home in politician and in influential, in professorial uh, kinds of relationships. He's at home in the courts and uh, so on and so forth and with leaders. And in Isaiah's day, um, Israel experienced a, a real time of prosperity. Uzziah was a, a good king, northern king. Jeroboam was the southern king, and together... You know, Israel reached uh, kind of a, a zenith in um, Isaiah's day of affluence and prosperity and so forth. And they raised Israel to the highest achievements politically and economically. Uh, but then Isaiah lived long enough to see the disintegration and the degradation of Israel as a nation and as a people. And so I want to suggest to you that Isaiah lived in times very similar to our times in America. I think that God has richly blessed our country in years past. You know, and I think we could all point to various kinds of things, but I think we are witnessing at this point in time kind of a disintegration, a degradation of our nation. Now, you can think about it morally. You can think about it economically. You can think about it, uh, you know, uh, uh, employment-wise. You, you can think about it in a number of different ways. But I think Isaiah lived in times similar to our times. And, um, you know... Uh, he warned people that there was a judgment coming. But he warned people about this judgment coming in an evangelical sort of way because he always attached hope 
on the other side of the judgment. He always said, you know, there's a better day coming. And uh, I believe that this is a great message for us today. Um, Eventually, Assyria came and took Israel captive and so forth. Uh, But he kept, Isaiah keeps speaking in the midst of the despair, in the midst of the destruction. In the same breath, he's speaking about the glory of the Lord. He's speaking about a Savior. He's talking about someday Christmas is going to come. And uh, he's talking about hope that's beyond, you know, all the destruction that was to come. Isaiah pretty much proclaimed the good news 707 to 100 to 750 years uh, before Jesus came, before the New Testament was written and so forth. He saw clearly by faith the great truths of the Bible. If you uh, have your Bible open, um, you know, if you want to, uh, if you think about the New Testament, if you think about Christmas, uh, listen to Isaiah. It was already uh, read for us this morning uh, by um, one of our children, Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. Um, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, he's looking forward, you know, in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born. Destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. The Assyrians are going to take over, you know, Israel, and you're going to be held captive and so on. But listen, there's a, there's a bright day coming. There's a Savior coming. There's a Christmas coming, you know. For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government someday is going to be on his shoulders. There's a bright day coming. There's a golden age coming, you know? And uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This Emmanuel, this Jesus, this Christmas child, he's going to be the ruler of the world someday. There's a golden age coming. And look at this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What a great day that's going to be. He's going to reign. There's going to be peace. He's going to govern. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. How do I know this is really going to happen? The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. It's going to happen. You can count on it. You can put your hope in it. And when you have that hope, you'll be a different person in the midst of whatever life. So if we are concerned about Christmas... Uh, Here it is in Isaiah. If we're concerned about Good Friday and what happened to Jesus the first time, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, Isaiah is looking forward. It's a vision from God, 700 to 750 years before this ever happened. Listen to what he says. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. It was Good Friday. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brings us peace was on him. By his wounds, we're healed. 750 years ahead, Isaiah's looking, laying it all out. But who's listening? In fact, you'll notice uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. The first question is, who believes this? Who believes our message? Here's Isaiah running around in in the courts and the politicians, and he's preaching this truth. Then the question is, who believes it? That's the issue, right? Who believes it? And and could the people get their heads around it? What about the atonement as we think about Christ becoming our substitute? Look at verse 10. It was God's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. It was God's will for him to suffer in our place, the atonement uh, that uh, he took our place. And then look at this. How about Easter? Verse 11. This is 750 years before. After the suffering of his soul, he'll see the light. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about Easter Sunday morning. After the suffering of his soul, he'll see the light of life, and he'll be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquity. The whole New Testament's right here in Isaiah. What about the coming days of tribulation? If you go back to um, uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 12... The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that's exalted, and they will be humbled. Uh, Verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low. The pride of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. There's coming a day. It's called in the Bible the day of the Lord, both Old and New Testament. It's the day of God's judgment. Whenever you read the phrase, the day of the Lord, that's the day of God's judgment. And Isaiah sees it coming. Uh, The arrogance of man will be brought low as idols will totally disappear. Verse 19, men will flee to caves and the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. It's almost like Revelation quotes that verse, right? In the New Testament, it talks about when the Lord comes back, his splendor, people are going to hide and uh, cover themselves with the rocks and so forth. In that day, look at verse 20, in that day, men will throw away to the rodents and the bats, they're idols of silver and idols of gold. Money's not going to help. Uh, they will flee to caverns in the rocks and to overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Stop putting your faith in people and meet the Lord, you know? And then this golden age that's coming, just go back a couple of verses here in uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. In the last days, not, not the day of the Lord, now in the last days, uh, this is uh, after the day of the Lord. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. There's a new Jerusalem that comes down to sit over the, uh, uh, the city of Jerusalem uh, as chief among the mountains. And it'll be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. It's coming a day when Jesus is going to return, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down, and all the nations of the earth will go there. Can you imagine this? Uh, Many peoples will come and they'll say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He'll settle disputes for many people. The people will beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore, nor will they train for war anymore. The golden age. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that golden age? Now turn to chapter 11 and verse 6 of Isaiah. Again, he uh, interlaces all of this together, but with the New Testament, we can piece it all together in chapter 11. And, you know, a shoot will, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from His roots, a branch, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. You ever wonder about the Holy Spirit's role in your life? 
This is talking about the Spirit resting on Jesus. Here are all the roles that the Holy Spirit will play in your life when you're a Christian. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with a bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like an ox, the infant will play near the hole of a cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from wherever the Jewish people were spread around. What a great day that's going to be. And so, you know, the whole New Testament is here 750 years before in the prophecy of Isaiah. But the question that leads the first part of this very famous, you know, uh, chapter in Isaiah chapter 53 is, who believes this? Who takes it seriously? Who gets it? Who has, who can hear with their hearts and see with the eyes of their heart? that God is seeking to reveal before he acts to his servants. He's seeking to reveal so that people might know. Uh, he asked the question, you know, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, you might think of Jesus as the right hand of God, right? And uh, the strong arm of the Lord. To whom has Jesus been revealed? And of course, it's to those who would listen. It's to those who would hear what God is saying. Um, who gets it? Who embraces the reality of Christmas? And I would suggest to you this morning that if we would be the people of God, living as we are between what is and what is to come, if we would be the people of God, be the people of hope and not miss the implications of Christmas, we too need to listen. We need to listen to what God says through his servants, through his prophets. And listening to God through Isaiah, I want to suggest, creates a rather astounding reality in Christian people. In Isaiah's day, as well as in our own day, most everyone speaks of a golden age as past, not future. Most everyone thinks of a time when things were really good, a golden age, if you will, as past. Uh, philosophers, professors, influencing leaders... You know, the Jewish leaders of Isaiah's time would point back to King David and Solomon. They'd say, oh, that's when times were really good. That was the golden age. And Isaiah comes and says, no, no, no. He says, one greater than David is coming. One greater than David is coming. That's not the golden age. The golden age is yet future. Uh, one greater even than David is coming from the line of David. Um, and he will reign over the whole earth. Plato was a philosopher you know, spoke of the golden age as Atlantis, which is now underwater, right? Supposed society where everything was perfect, called it Atlantis. And uh, every ancient poet, every Greco-Roman uh, philosopher spoke of the golden age of innocence and bliss as past. But Isaiah comes into the midst of all of that and says, no, no, no. One greater than David is coming. And he reveals he'll be born of a virgin and he'll be called by these names and, and so on and so on. 
And uh, the golden age is yet future. God himself will come again in the person of Jesus. The skies will roll back, the Bible says. The glory of God will be seen by all. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a day that's going to be. And if you are pregnant with that kind of hope, it changes how you deal with everything in this life. What a difference that makes if you're looking forward. I say to you that we Christians are the only people in the world who can afford to be optimists about the future. No matter what it looks like in the present. Because of the promises of God. Because Christmas happened. And because of the promises associated with Christmas. Uh, the arm of the Lord will reign on the earth. It's a promise uh, that there will be a millennial kingdom. In the book of Revelation, again, this is almost like a repeat of what Isaiah says. Uh, John says, I saw new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself uh, will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain, for the old order of things has passed. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Who's seated on the throne? I am making everything new, he said. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There is a golden age that is yet future. Can we believe in a fantastic future? Uh, can we be optimistic, hope-filled people so that we can disseminate, like Isaiah, the message of God to the world in which God has chosen to place us? Can we, in the midst of what has become Christmas, give the true message of Christmas as to why Christ came, and how we can be a part of this golden age. You know, if we listen to Isaiah, the same prophet who described in minute detail the first coming of Christ, the same prophet, all right, who describes Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53 as if he were standing next to him on Good Friday. If you read the remarkable Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll talk about this more, but you know, in the Jewish daily readings, they leave out Isaiah 53. It's that powerful. And uh, the same prophet, Isaiah, you know, who uh, uh, describes Jesus as if he were standing next to him, 700 years, describes the resurrection. He is the prophet who describes the coming of this golden age, uh, this day of glory and power. And we Christians, we're the only ones who can live with a sense of anticipation with integrity. And, you know, it's so easy to lose this in the midst of, you know, our bodies start wearing down and wearing out and our, uh, we've got lots of troubles and stuff in our temporary life and we have lots of issues going on. And it's easy to lose sight of the privilege that's ours because of the one who came at Christmas time. Isaiah says there'll be terrible time of judgment coming, uh, death, disease, loss, hopelessness. But in the midst of it, God says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. God says, uh, as he describes the, the glory of this coming kingdom, every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for this kingdom that Isaiah foresaw 
that Jesus came to establish and that someday will be a very real reality. What a great privilege to be people who don't miss Christmas. A part of life-giving living is the privilege of representing God's hope in the midst of hopelessness, which is all around us, in order that people might come to embrace uh, Christ for who he really is. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, I'm so thankful that you're a God who doesn't do anything without revealing it first. What a great thought that is. And uh, I just pray, Father, that as we, uh, your children, listen to you, as we study your word, as we seek to understand what you're saying, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, as we see with the eyes of our hearts, and especially us, as we have uh, the fulfillment of so many of these prophecies now in the New Testament, we can look back. And as we hear Isaiah speaking about all that's associated with Christmas, and uh, especially this reality uh, of, of hope, and I pray, Father, that uh, this Christmas, uh, our lives would be marked with the hope that comes to us because of Jesus Christ coming into the world and being our Savior. And that as we are filled, Father, with your hope, with your promises, that we would be life-giving people to the people around us, that we might be able to offer people uh, the promises uh, that uh, are laid out 700 years before they ever begin to take place, and that people, Father, might be uh, tapped by your Spirit and be drawn to you and uh, come and glorify you. And uh, may we glorify you by being optimistic, uh, authentic Christians filled with hope for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.